Before reading our scripture passage for tonight, which is Obadiah, verses 1 through 10, I'll first read a passage from the New Testament, Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it, Luke 12, 31 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made you a judge or arbiter over you? Or who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have made ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And now Obadiah verses 1 through 10. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off. Because of the murder and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. What's the difference between humiliation and humility? Well, both bring lowness rather than loftiness to mind. But aside from that, humiliation and humility are vastly different. The lowliness of humiliation is like that dreaded moment in a bad dream where one realizes that somehow they've gotten all the way to school wearing only their skivvies. Humiliation involves some kind of painful loss of dignity before others. Humility, on the other hand, is more of a virtue than a feeling associated with some embarrassing event. The lowliness of humility is a modest and accurate 
assessment of oneself. Humiliation and humility are so different that one who possesses humility actually wields a kind of armor that can pad the emotional impact of a humiliating incident. The humble tend toward self-awareness and their limitations when they've, where they've come to terms with them. And they're also comfortable in their strengths, not really finding a need to artificially puff themselves up with boasting. Well, of all the Old Testament books, Obadiah is the humblest in length, just 21 verses. And the first 10 verses that we're focusing on tonight describe a vision from the Lord, which is much worse for Eden than a mere humiliating dream that it might have woken up from. Rather, the curtain opens up with Act 1, the pending, utter humiliation of Edom. And because Edom sits aloft a plethora of geographic, military, political, and economic strongholds, it lacks any humility which might have perceived that this day of the Lord would come. In the first part of verse 1, we read, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God, concerning Edom. Now, we know virtually nothing about the prophet Obadiah except the time of his ministry. In verses 10 to 14, Edom is abusing Israel amid their Babylonian captivity. So this was written after Jerusalem was destroyed in 386 BC, 586 BC. And Obadiah also comes on the scene a bit after Jeremiah, as verses 2 through 7 show his familiarity with Jeremiah 49. Additionally, this vision is concerning Edom, but not really written to Edom. Obadiah is not calling for Edom to repent, but rather this book's purpose is to edify Israel during the captivity. Therefore, it was written before Israel returned from Babylon 70 years later. The prophet continues in verse 1, We have heard a report from the Lord, which is that a messenger has been sent among the nations. Now, it's possible that when Obadiah says we, he's referring to the rest of the, those in the heavenly council, being take up into, taken up into the heavenly court is standard for the Lord's prophets, and so surely Obadiah had such an experience. But it's not necessary that he speak in the first person plural as a reference to that. Lots of prophets don't. It seems more likely that since verses 2 through 7 are so closely tied to Jeremiah, and Obadiah's audience would be familiar with Jeremiah, that he's speaking in a sense in stereo with that prophet about Edom's fall. Obadiah's vision has unique nuances compared with Jeremiah's and moves along with a swifter momentum. Plus, Edom's doom is not as far off as it is in Jeremiah, so this message is adapted for an audience who can already see in real time that Edom's elevated standing among the nations is shrinking. So in harmony, these prophets speak of the envoy that will go out and recruit Edom's neighbors to turn on them. But who is this messenger? Well, it's not your standard military recruiter that comes offering a GI Bill and health care, TRICARE benefits to soldiers who uh, will break an alliance with Edom and turn on them. And the messenger is also not the prophet or the book of Obadiah, as if the nations might hear and read this vision and then perhaps be persuaded to rise up and obey Israel's God. The messenger is 
the Holy Spirit, who goes forth in power to accomplish God's sovereign will and likely in cooperation with the angels. And so when the Lord sends this message to the nations, rise up, meaning stand up for battle against Edom, they will willingly reply, yes, let us rise up for battle. So despite Israel's many betrayals of their suzerain Lord, which led to their exile, the Lord will still be faithful to them. He will subdue a uniquely grievous enemy to Israel who was merciless to them when they were down. And though the Lord will not directly, miraculously rain fire and sulfur upon them as with Sodom and Gomorrah, nor will he just open the earth beneath this enemy, he will providentially rouse the nations to bring judgment on Edom. Now, Edom directly translates to the color red. And anyone today who visits the popular tourist destination of ancient Petra can observe that much of the mountains of the lands of Edom is indeed red in appearance. It was and is a unique spectacle. And yet the red in the Lord's eyes as he looks upon Edom is not a reflection of its landscape, but rather the anger of a father whose patience with his child's bully has run out. And so, in verses 2 to 4, the immediate speaker switches from Obadiah to God himself, and he will make clear that how the surrounding nations are about to treat Edom is his intention and by his hand. In verse 2, he begins to speak, saying, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. Or more literally, God is going to give Edom smallness. Weakness and insignificance will be his present to them. Their prestige and their respect in the eyes of others will fade to nothing, as well as their ability to rule over the nations or even influence them. And their territory will also shrink to zilch, leaving only a, a displaced people behind. The writing on the wall is already present at the time of this vision. Babylon has been rising in power, and Edom can't imagine the backroom deals that might be going on between its supposedly strong allies and Babylon, but they are. Nations that Edom had covenanted with as brothers were already posturing to come out on top as the world was changing and evolving. And Edom is being invited less and less to be in the room where it happens. Furthermore, Edom will not just face, fade into irrelevance. The Lord goes on in verse 2 to say that Edom shall be utterly despised. Proverbs tells us that a man is commended according to his good, good sense, but one of, the, of a twisted mind is despised. And that when wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. So not only did Edom's neighbors find them decreasingly useful, somewhere along the way, Edom's unique wickedness was also exposed, and they became a stench to all their neighbors. Perhaps perhaps Project Veritas did a piece on their dastardly treatment of Israel. Perhaps their ways of doing business were increasingly off-putting. Or maybe it was always foul, and their alliances were never forged by lands that had to do business with Edom as as a necessary evil. 
And they, maybe their, their neighbors were always waiting for a politically expedient time to cut ties with Edom. Whatever it was, the Edomites did not see this coming. So the Lord continues in verse 3, the pride or overconfidence of your heart has caused you to be deceived. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? In a sense, Edom deceived itself. And Jeremiah is helpful here in shedding light on how this happened. Jeremiah adds, fear of you has misled you. Meaning that Edom was used to seeing its enemies' knees knock as they looked up at the rocked clefts in the mountains that they fortified themselves in. The fight for any would-be attacker began with a battle to merely compose themselves, and Edom was accustomed to seeing the terror in their eyes as they would look down and declare on them, it's useless, I have the high ground. Their assessment of themselves was not rooted in reality, but in how they were accustomed to being perceived of by others. Like the beautiful woman who feels little need to assess her character when people are frequently treating her like royalty, or like the tenured university professor who has lost all passion for teaching the truth because his students treat him like a modern-day prophet. Well, probably a reason for Obadiah leaving out the fear of you has misled you is that At this point in time, some nations had already begun to set their fears aside and begun to move against Edom. But while this terror was no longer relevant for Obadiah's immediate audience, Edom remained like Saruman in Orthanc, confident in his safety, but about to get caught off guard by the shocking power that unexpected enemies were about to bring against him. In verse 4, the Lord introduces a hypothetical, grandiose fortification to show how misplaced their confidence really was. He says, Though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Though Edom feels it is so high above everyone else, they may as well be seated in the stars, the Lord says, Even if that were true, you would still not be out of my reach. At this point in the vision, time fast-forwards and the perspective shifts back to the prophet who beholds Edom's destruction as completed. And while the ESV doesn't bring this out, many translations see a clear emotive response which this scene of this devastation evokes in Obadiah. Often translators will insert something like a gasp in here. Mandalore, after the empire is finished with it, has more to try and rebuild with than Edom. Verse 5 says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, ah, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Even a prophet, who at this point in redemptive history should have no problem praying for the destruction of Israel's enemies, has an immediate, visceral reaction of shock and lament, and even inklings of a wish that Edom might have only been plundered by thieves and night burglars, rather than the hostile enemy that it confronted. Earthly thieves may break in, may break in, but 
they generally only carry away what they want or what they can fit under each arm as they run off into the night. Even if they brought a getaway vehicle and filled it with all of your stuff while you were gone, they usually leave something behind. But this, this is a shockingly thorough ransacking. Some interpret Obadiah's response as schadenfreude, a German term we have no equivalent for in English, which refers to the pleasure that one may derive from another's misfortune. This is inappropriate in that one overarching theme of this book is the evil of schadenfreude. Edom reveled in Israel's misfortune, and it would be ironic and twisted to find a license in Obadiah to look down on the destruction of even one's enemies and laugh. Surely the destruction of an enemy of God is a relief, and it's a vindication for the people of God. This is actually a primary theme of Obadiah. And so we do pray for the Lord to come quickly in his final day of judgment. But Proverbs 24:17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. And Obadiah does not do so here. Now, we have to leave room, though, for a place to laugh, because you might be wondering about Psalm 2, where he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And it is true that in the case of something like Psalm 2, where the irony and ridiculousness of the negotiations and plottings against the Lord may evoke images of the three stooges plotting against the very source of all wisdom, and that truly is the stuff of comedy. But were the religious leaders who plotted to put Christ on the cross, were they to meet some tragic end, it would still be just that, a tragic and pitiable end, just as the destruction of Edom is. And so Obadiah's speech pattern breaks for just one verse to narratively sigh and soak in the surreal decimation that he's beheld. And the rhyme and the rhythm of his speech, wouldn't you know it, follows a common poetic lament pattern. Verse 6, Ah, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, or rather, completely cleaned out. And here, as Obadiah soberly takes in the situation, here, for the first time, he swaps in the nation of Edom for the more personal name of Esau, the father of the Edomites. And so along with the red nation and its red mountains, Obaniah now pulls in images like that of a red stew and a red hairy brother into this vision. Genesis 25, 30-34 may come to mind where Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Or Genesis 27, 22 to 24, where Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau, and he did not recognize him because his hands 
were hairy like his brother's Esau hands. So he blessed him and said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Or Genesis 27, 34 and 35. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, oh, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. So Obadiah has made such connections fresh to the reader as he moves into verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Or as one translator captures the feeling well, you are at your wit's end. There is nothing left for Esau's descendants. He despised his birthright and traded it for a bowl of stew. And he is again outmaneuvered while his eyes were set on the earth and the comforts it could produce for him. His descendants now beg and scour for anything that might be left for them, seeking even to find some shelter as refugees in neighboring nations, and they are blocked and deported at every turn. Nations who once, uh, who were once like covenant brothers for Edom were deceptive and broke alliances with Edom just at the crucial moment, and the military, political, and economic alliances he assumed would be his, and yet he took for granted, have slipped from his grasp again. Now, of course, the whole of this vision should be taken as divine speech, but at this point, the Lord speaks directly again. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, Now, the point here is not that Edom is uniquely wise among the nations, but that those particularly wise individuals who fill every nation's ranks of leadership and advise the king on policies and procedures and decisions will somehow leave Edom. Perhaps they were offered positions on the councils of other nations, and the wise ones jumped off the sinking ship of Edom. And as the wise will effectively disappear, so shall the brave, in verse 9, where the Lord continues, and your mighty men, or heroes, shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off. Now, Taman was the firstborn son of Esau and the oldest son of Eliphaz. So this name drop ratchets up the personal nature of the fall of Edom one more notch, and it ratchets down the morale, and esprit de corps of Edom's patriots. Even Navy SEALs aren't much good in battle without the wise ones planning policies and strategies. Without their direction, even the bravest of the brave are paralyzed with fear as those looking up at Edom's fortifications once were. They are now effectively useless. So the security and stability of the wise and the brave ones are gone. And with that, the final foundations of anything that might resemble a nation rather than just a scattering of peoples will crack. Now, you may have noticed that I have not included what some Bible uh, translate as the last 
two words of verses 9. That's because they belong as the first two words of verse 10. There's a long tradition of these two words uh, going in verse 10 for good reasons. First, the word for slaughter or murder in question has a negative immoral connotation everywhere that it's used in Scripture. So if left in verse 9, it implies that the Lord has done something inappropriate. Additionally, verse 10 is meant to wrap this passage up with the reason for Edom's judgment, and it reads extremely anticlimactically to say that God slaughtered Edom for just doing violence to Jacob. It doesn't really work. Instead, verse 10 should read, because of the slaughter, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And here, the name of Jacob, likely much anticipated, is finally presented. It is Jacob, the Lord's Israel, his special people, and the line by which the eternal Son would one day take on flesh to save his people from their sin, that Esau hated, despised, mocked, slaughtered, and did violence to while they were down. And all of this from one who ought to have been a good big brother, while his little brother was at times a pain in the neck. Esau will be humiliated against his will because he lacked any humility to do it himself. And whereas he would be cast down as if from the stars to the earth, Jesus would willingly humble himself and descend from above the stars, from his heavenly throne all the way down to the earth in his incarnation and even below it in his death. And yet, this humble descent was in obedience to the Father. Indeed, all that he did was in willing, humble obedience to the will of his Father, that he might stand in the place of even his sinful people, who on our own deserve nothing but exile. And while his utter humility on the cross would appear to be a humiliation that would scatter his disciples never to be brought back together again, Esau's beloved earth, nor the tomb in the rocks could hold Jesus. So his being brought low was not the end of the story. He was raised to sit as king of kings, subduing all things to himself, just as he does to Esau. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in calling out the world a people to himself, and giving them officers and laws and censures by which he visibly governs them, and bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his glory and for their good, and also taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. I want to point out one particularly pertinent and often difficult reality that presents itself when we consider the office of Christ as king in the light of our passage this evening. And that is the reality that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And the Lord tends to subdue his own people before subduing the world. How hard 
it must have been for God's people being chastised in exile for those with some semblance of genuine faith, that is, to feel like the wicked were getting away with everything while the people of God were being sternly subdued. But it's better to be first than last when it comes to receiving discipline. As we hear God's word and are convicted in a way that moves us to repentance, we suffer unrest and we are no longer comfortable in our own sin. But it's the spirit of God in breaking and making us uncomfortable in the safety of God's grace. It's a better gig and a better covenant than being chastised in exile. But it's still, nonetheless, hard to receive any chastening while the plainly wicked seem to be getting away with so much unchecked evil. It's better, though, for our remaining rebellion and depravity to be chipped away at and refined first. Because for us, Our subduing happens within the safety of Christ. This humbling is not that we might be humiliated, but that we might grow in Christ-like humility. Amen.